0: Hi, my name is Gunnar Froh, and I'm your host on the Wonder Mobility podcast. All right, welcome back to the Wonder Mobility podcast. Today I'm speaking with Özgur from Oxbotica. Welcome, Özgur.
1: Hi, Gunnar. Nice to meet you. Great to be on the show.
0: Thank you for coming, and congratulations on your achievements already this year. It's only been about
1: six weeks, but you already had quite some news to share yeah we have um, we closed our series b investment round we just had a pretty awesome announcement yesterday with bp which we can touch on throughout today yeah it's a pretty fast start to the new year absolutely so we're quite happy with <laughs> <Yeah. so far. laughs> your
0: company that you're leading Oxbotica, is autonomous vehicle i technology company you're based in the uk and you are delivering a product that's basically hardware making vehicles autonomous and then also software managing those fleets of autonomous vehicles. But you haven't always done that. You've been having a career in tech before. Do you want to give like a little bit of a background of how you ended up doing what you're
1: doing at the moment? Absolutely. So we'll talk about Oxbotica a little bit, maybe just to introduce myself just a bit to set a context. So I I actually joined the company about 18 months ago as the as The CEO. company was founded in 2014 by two Oxford professors, Paul and Ingmar, and we'll come back on that. And it's been a fascinating journey for me and for the company. About myself, my background, my passion, and probably, I mean, it's kind of sad to summarize, but all I've done all my life is around software, <laughs> different types of software. Early on, I in my career, I worked on software systems and implementations, doing social services in the U.S., has nothing to do with autonomy or high-tech. I was working with social services divisions of states and federal government, working with neglected children and families, designing systems together with the users. Essentially, in those days, I would say this is about 20 plus years ago, pretty much like moving from mainframe to client server, eventually to web, of course. But I think that kind of like created a Passion when you see the power of software and what it can do in terms of uh, the benefits it actually delivers to everyone. I mean, like families and children. And uh, I think that has then become a threat for me going forward. I really enjoy doing anything and everything that has to do with software, as long as I see that it has a transformational impact. In the last couple of years, I've been mostly focusing on the automotive industry. I've been, like I said, I've been with Oxbodica in the last almost two years now. And Oxfordica's journey has been fascinating. I mean, we are an autonomous vehicle software company, so we do only software. If you think about a very high-level architectural view of an autonomous vehicle, Gunnar, you're talking about the vehicle itself, you're talking about a bunch of sensors, and you have the autonomous vehicle software. So what we specialize in is the software aspect of it. We work with many different sensor manufacturers. We've uh, worked with different types of vehicles. I think our software ran on 17 or 18 different types of vehicles to date. So we're, we're all about software. I'm really happy to uh, talk through that during today's show. And
0: you mentioned in the beginning that you also just announced your Series B was uh, sizable, about 50 million. And then you published, I think only a few days ago, that you are you successfully completed a trial with a vehicle that you have equipped and that was run by your software and autonomous vehicle through one of your also investor shareholders through BP on one of their refineries. And can you talk a little bit about how can a company like yours in the autonomous vehicle space that seems to be, requires such heavy investments and there are some very big players by now active. So there's sure. Waymo who would you know, claim that they spend a billion a year on server costs alone and so on. How can Oxford spin out that's apparently having success in the market as well and developing successful technology? How can you be successful in this space? How are you different? What's your, how's your approach different?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would love to be able to say we're 60 times smarter than Waymo, but that's probably not the answer. <laughs> <laughs> so... So I think if you if you kind of like step back, the investment rounds and some of the partnerships we announced with BP and more to come is, is really a kind of like a very good combination of where we are in our strategy execution. Just to give you a little bit of a context, when Paul and Ingmar started the company in 2014, their founding vision was to build an autonomous software platform that could work on any vehicle and in any, in any setting. I guess to use the industry terminology, it's commonly known as operating design domain, like ODDs, different types of ODDs. And ODD could be a goods delivery, could be a payment robot, could be a trucking, whatever you can think of. And, and you see more and more companies are specialized in that. Some are actually changing their focus. Some of the companies in the U.S., for example, started as, Focusing on passenger cars, now they're moving into trucking. Some others are very much looking into a vertical stack, for example, building the vehicle, the sensors and the software to do grocery deliveries. So we have different business models emerging. So our our passion has been around, can we build an autonomy software stack that could deliver benefits across many different industries and many different vehicles? And clearly, it's a big undertaking. And the reality is, and what we know is, obviously, we cannot do all at the same time. But what we have decided about two years ago, after we have seen that our software works in mines, in ports, in cities, I and mean, we ran trials in London, we have ran trials in Yokohama, Japan. So we actually have seen between 2014 and 18 that our software stack does indeed work in different settings, does indeed work with different types of vehicles. Then it becomes a little bit like a go-to-market challenge because we cannot clearly address ports and mines and and uh, robo taxis and shuttles and everything all at the same time. Mm-hmm. So at that point we made a we made a conscious decision, and I think the decision was driven by two factors. One was we are really really passionate about deploying our tech. The core DNA of the company is uh, is a nut, basically field roboticists. These people find enjoyment seeing their tech work out there. Clearly, they love the R&D. They love working on smart algorithms. But instead of sitting around and perfecting the algorithm that's going to be used five years later, I think the real passion of the company is to take the tech out there right now. So from that perspective, we then focus on early applications. And if you think about it, autonomy today is already happening in the industry. If you look at the mining industry, if you look at ports, In mining industry, for example, for a number of years now, autonomous vehicles are operating. The technology has been mostly driven by vehicle OEMs, some big names like industrial vehicle OEMs in the mining domain and in ports. It's now starting to happen. And I think you're going to see in agriculture, even like 20 years ago, you were starting to see some autonomous vehicles operating. So our passion is to see our technology work out there. And we believe early applications, industry applications are going to be the way forward. That's why you see, for example, in our market messaging and in our positioning a bit of a slant for the for the early years towards industrial applications. That's why the BP partnership that you were alluding to is extremely important because BP, if you think about it, I mean these guys operate refineries, they operate um, they operate at airports, they operate wind farms, they operate solar farms. so there are a lot of different applications across their operations that we can partner with. And they have an amazing vision that really complements our vision. Then you also mentioned the second part. It's it's a matter of capitalization, right? I mean, we are also, I I believe we are quite commercially savvy and smart. We want to build a business and we believe building a business is obviously bringing an external capital, like you mentioned. I mean, we raised a very successful Series B round, roughly around $50 million, And instead of only relying on external capital to grow our company, we also want to bring in customers uh, and partner revenues to continue to fuel our growth. So we have a bit of a hybrid growth model from a business execution perspective as well. So I think those are the two, two aspects I would highlight.
0: And when you talk about these industrial applications, so mining, farming, ports, and so on, you mentioned there is... Some autonomy deployed already. Maybe not everybody realizes if you don't live close to one, maybe or don't know people working there. But there's some applications deployed already, and you are your team is close to wanting to see the technology deployed in the field. So, and you also want revenues, not just grow from investor money. So, therefore, these are probably good early customers, either pilot partners or already customers for the applications. Do you focus on these? industries probably for a longer time or is that like a very short-term focus until there's maybe a certain stage of maturity and then as quickly as possible into the presumably bigger field of people transportation in cities? Or do you foresee that that this is so actually also different in terms of applications that that this is more even the long-term focus?
1: I think it's an excellent question. The the focus is clearly long-term. And again, I think these are long-term partnerships. Like a typical commercial contract we go into, minimum we've seen is around five years. We're talking about mm-hmm. them being 10 years. These are pretty long-term partnerships because, I mean, autonomy is, a, I mean, it's, it's still an evolving technology, right? I mean, if, if it was all done and dusted you would have seen many vehicles running around autonomously in cities and in suburbs and around, uh, around us. So because it requires co-designing, co-creation, co-innovation, and co-development, these are the types of partnerships we go into. Like, for example, just to give you an example, with BP, these are going to be fairly long-term engagements. And we do feel uh, like, let's pick mining, let's pick uh, the work we have done, and we would like to continue with BP and refineries there's actually a pretty big potential from a business perspective. Just to give you an idea, when you look, look at some stats in, in mining area, for example, in mining, only 2% of the vehicles globally today are autonomous. And uh, these are typically, autonomy typically starts where, I mean, just like you would expect in any, any part of the value chain, they start with a uh, clear business case, haulage uh, applications, and these are, these are like high driver costs requires a lot of safety measures. And the two, two percent has been basically around this. And then there are so many other vehicles in a mining area. You got pickup trucks, water trucks, spare part delivery trucks. There's a huge potential, both from a efficiency perspective, from a safety perspective, from a cleaner operation perspective. So definitely a long-term engagement. What we would like to do though, I think you raised a good point. Uh, not necessarily give up on on on-road applications or public road applications. What we believe is, uh, as as funny as it may sound, it's definitely true that a lot of the learnings we get from industry applications and off-road applications are actually very applicable for public road applications. So we believe getting our tech out there, being used, being deployed in an operational setting by real customers really contributes to our longer-term vision, which we call as universal autonomy, and that's around, we really, really want to see autonomy being deployed in mines, in ports, in shuttles, and eventually, maybe many years later, in uh, vehicles around urban urban areas. One of the features, so to speak,
0: of your product that comes up a lot in the communication that you do is how it's independent of external infrastructure, quote-unquote. Basically, GPS signals or even HD maps of the environment and so on. And... What does that mean for you having to work under these conditions or trying to set things up so it doesn't rely on those? How does it change the development of the product? And what advantage do you think will maybe also come from that later?
1: Sure. I think, I, think it, um, it, I mean, first of all, we can work with GPS and we have worked with GPS in the past. So if GPS is available, we will always use it. The, because the founding vision and how we developed our software was to be able to use it anywhere and on any type of vehicle, I think the early design principles of the software were around, okay, how can we build a stack, an autonomous software stack, with as little dependencies and as little restrictions and as little requirements as possible. So this shows itself when it comes to our reliance on GPS, This shows, or like not relying on GPS, this shows itself on us not necessarily relying on lane markings or road signs. Our compute requirements, basically the type of computer you need to have on board the vehicle is extremely limited. That allows us to be able to work on a huge mining truck as well as on a forklift, as well as on a payment last mile delivery robot. So I, I think when you design the system from ground up, with as little restrictions as possible, I think you get kind of into, into, into that number of possibilities. Specifically to your point around GPS, I think it is actually a extremely important thing in a number of industries. Imagine, like, for example, in today's GPS based systems don't work in underground mines because there's no GPS signal. So that's actually a huge differentiator for us when, when we talk to miners or you don't have to be in a underground. We see a GPS signal loss in cities with very high skyscrapers. If you're driving around in in, in New York or in any in any big metropolitan area in, in the world, you will run into what we call as urban canyons. And we had a bit of an article around this like a couple of months ago, I think, where there could be a loss of GPS signal. So you have to have different algorithms. Who is able to tell the vehicle where it is? So only relying on GPS when we do autonomy is not something we wanted to do. So we design our systems in a different way from ground up. Do you foresee that in the future, your solution, because you're
0: trying to design from the ground up without dependence on external infrastructure, will be the stronger solution for more emerging market situations, or is that too sort of far off and too speculative?
1: I think it's it's tough to tell what I what I think will happen is just like you would see in many different I guess when you when there are different types of technologies trying to achieve a similar outcome, you will probably see hybrid models evolving. I think in some specific applications, are like not needing GPS is going to be fine. In some applications where GPS signal is very reliable, and there maybe there's not going to be a need for our tech. And I actually truly believe there will be many cases where there's going to be hybrid models, meaning, okay, you know, it's going to work on GPS, but there will definitely be a redundant system that requires another algorithm that could be ours or vice versa. So I think you're going to see companies implementing hybrid models and making sure, because I mean, everybody's pretty obsessed about safety if you think about it. And and there's Always, this like discussion around okay, can we operate only on? If you think about like some of the sensors discussion, there's always this speculation in the industry: can we only operate with cameras? Do we really need lidar? Do we have to use radar? If you think about it, I mean, if all three are available and they're at affordable price points, why wouldn't you use all three? And I and I, I see our tech sometimes being the primary engine for autonomy, and it could very well be that it could be supporting algorithm in some other cases, depending on the use case. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about
0: your business model? So everybody doesn't want to own an asset and basically just have recurring software fees, but is that how you see it also working with the clients that you are targeting, that you can basically just license out software to them, or are you going to potentially more provide autonomous vehicles as a service? Yep.
1: So, uh, I mean, I think... Um, it, It's a great question, and it's one that we obviously had our hypothesis two years ago. And to your point, like any VC-backed company, our starting position was, okay, can we? is this a business that is going to be recurring license fees? Of course, we would love for it to be, but is that what the end users or customers are willing to do? Is that aligned with their business models? And the last, I would say, 18 months, we've had a lot of dealings with go-to-market partners and end customers. So we have seen now that our early hypotheses were indeed correct. I mean, this is a market autonomy, at least uh, in the industrial domain in the, in the early days. And uh, we have not enough proof points that is going to be recurring license fees being paid by end customers. And there's actually a very good reason for that. I'll give you from an operator's perspective today. If you're a mine operator and if you have autonomous trucks driving around, in North America, just to give you some numbers, uh, based on the research we've done, uh, typical drivers, I mean, these are quite complex machinery operating in difficult conditions, right? So it's not just any drivers. So the drivers' yep. annual yep. salaries are around $200,000. To run uh, these large, haulish trucks, you usually need about four drivers running 24-7, taking shifts and taking some time off, of course. So if you think about it, I mean, you're talking about like $800,000 a year minimum per truck. Let's round that up just for discussion's sake, a million dollars. And this actually sits on, this is a recurring expense that sits on a mine operator's OPEX column, if you look from a very like accounting perspective. So from a mental model perspective, if you're a mine operator, that item is a recurring expense that sits on your OPEX budget already. So. Talking Mm -hmm. to them and saying, look, an autonomous vehicle, an autonomous haulage truck is going to be safer. It's going to accelerate and decelerate, probably with a level of precision that, uh, I mean, maybe the drivers will hate to hear this, but it's not going to be the most exciting ride, but it's definitely going to be the smoother ride. Third, it's going to be a fraction of the annual expense. So mentally, I think the operators are already seeing this benefit, let's call it, as an OPEX item. So it's absolutely, uh, they're, they're totally susceptible to paying it as a recurring license fee on an annual basis. So our model, which we have seen is a recurring license fee per year per vehicle so far. I think as business models emerge and as the benefit becomes even more measurable in a more precise way, I could see even more disruptive models emerging like, uh, whatever is the benefit you're doing, per ton being carried, number of passengers being transported. I could see even finer business models emerging, but I think it will definitely be a recurring fee on an annual basis or a quarterly basis.
0: Would there be an operator in the mix somehow too, who would then procure these hardware components that are needed and maintain them? and Or is that something your customers would typically be able to do by themselves? So? You just ask for the software. Yeah,
1: use... I, I think it. I think it depends on the level of proficiency each customer is going to have. If I look at uh, maybe two extreme examples, let's say in a mine environment. I mean, you, you you are a big miner and you have. I mean, typically, since autonomy is already a big part of their operations, we, we are seeing some of the large mine mining companies around the world have their in-house autonomy teams who mm-hmm. know how to integrate the software into their vehicles, who understands about sensor technologies. So they're actually quite well worse. And and we're talking about some of them having 100 plus people in-house focusing on autonomy. So with customers as savvy as these, I'm pretty sure the operators themselves will take the lead when it comes to the integration and operation of the systems. Mm -hmm. Then I think on the other extreme, let's think about a world where we are working with a which is one of our focus areas going forward is uh, because one of the early applications we see on public roads is going to be people transport to shuttles, maybe started starting with some dedicated lanes, mixing with traffic occasionally in early years, in the next couple of years, and then moving into like fully autonomous, totally 100% mixed traffic, maybe like many years later. In that case, I mean, there's going to be a shuttle manufacturer, obviously. And then those shuttles will be used by cities, municipal, like municipalities or cities, transport authorities, we don't expect cities to have, obviously, in-house, like a little town in Germany operating five autonomous shuttles. I mean, they're not going to have an in-house autonomy team. I think they're going to rely on either the shuttle OEM, probably the shuttle OEM to to provide that level of service to make sure the shuttles are maintained and operated seamlessly. <laughs>
0: Can you talk a little bit about beyond the product, your recent funding experience? You just closed around, so it's like a very good feeling. I'm sure it's always like a process, and like yeah, it requires a lot of focus from from the CEO and from some people in the company. And right now is a very sort of strange time in that because there was a recession last year, yeah. uh, but then also a lot of goodwill in the markets, like in the public markets, and apparently a lot of private market activity. And now more and more, you know, people are using kind of creative, not necessarily new, but like resurfacing constructs like acquisition or fundings to acquisitions of special purpose vehicles and so on. What did you experience in, this, in these months leading up to your funding round? How do you think this environment for mobility founders going out to fundraise is at the moment and what were maybe also some unusual options or situations that you were confronted with? Yep.
1: So I mean, it's a great question, right? So we we started our efforts around our fundraise, perfect in a perfect, time manner around April May. So that was the <laughs> that was that was the height of the COVID pandemic, I would say, and the early couple months have been around. Of course, I mean, the, the most uncertain was around early months, and when we reached out to a number of uh, funds who we thought would be interested in oxford i think the first group of answers we were getting were uh, i think that everybody was really focused on their own portfolio and trying to understand the impact on their own portfolio companies so to be very open i think may and june were not we're not maybe like april may were not the highlights then i think everybody kind of realized okay you know what we kind of know what we know we don't know what we don't know i think everybody got a little bit used to the uncertainty so during during summer, I think we have seen a lot more progress on our side. And I think we also had a pretty, I guess, targeted strategy because we wanted a mix of financial and strategic investors to join. We didn't want only strategic investors who would be also willing to use our technology and maybe they work with us as a go-to-market channel partner. We also didn't want only financial investors we kind of were able to go after a mix. And I think with the funding round and with some of the names we have closed, like BP, obviously leading the round, then there's a business growth fund, which is one of the largest VC funds in UK. Tencent is also part of the round, a number of other big names. So I think we were able to collate a really good group of uh, investors who I think who believe in the vision for the company and who, who basically decided to join, join our journey. In terms of uh, the type of questions we have received, I think it's, it's actually a pretty good reflection of where the autonomy industry is uh, mm-hmm. in the last year or so. I think probably between 2014 and 18, there was the, I mean, if I use a typical, like a, maybe a little bit of a cliche term, but it was at the hype of the Gartner's <laughs> hype cycle. I think after 2018 or so, there has been a little bit of a, or maybe quite a bit of a reality kicking in the industry, where everybody realizes how difficult the challenge is. It's almost like one of those things, like everybody knows autonomy is going to happen. Everybody knows that it's going to transform when it happens. Uh, the industries that it impacts. If it's ride-sharing, robot taxis, it's going to completely transform that industry. If it's mining, ports, it's going to completely transform those industries. What people didn't know, okay, it's great, but when is it going to happen and how is it going to happen and who are going to be the winners? So a big focus, I think, since 2018 have shifted towards, okay, great guys, we know the technology is going to work and we believe in what you have, but how are you actually going to commercialize this and how are you going to create a sustainable and profitable business, whether it's in three years, five years, or 10 years, can you show us the roadmap? So a lot of our discussions in our funding no. round have been around the business plan, the commercialization plan, the go-to-market partners, how are you taking this to market? And then I think that actually helped us really sharpen our strategy, Gunnar, because I think our focus on early applications, like in mining and port industry applications, where revenue can be generated, technology can be used, has, has been very well received by our investors.
0: I can imagine, and when you look at this year, what are some milestones for for you and for the company that are coming up in terms of maybe partnerships or technological development what sort of a, what are the next steps this year that you are trying to achieve
1: I think a big um, I, th- I think a big in, like at a high level, the high priority for us is to take our autonomy software out to market so we, I think this is a year where we're going to be moving from trials and POCs towards early deployments, early commercial deployments. So I think we finished last year with with money in the bank, of course. That's very helpful. And then we also finished last year with a number of key commercial uh, agreements signed. There will be probably one or two extremely key deals, we also get over the line, hopefully, in the next coming weeks or months during Q1. So you should definitely continue to follow us. There's going to be a few other things coming down the road. We're almost there. I think with our, our focus is going to be with those key partners, take our software to market and get them to start using maybe a few vehicles this year. It's not going to be hundreds, maybe three, four, five, ten, 10. But to get to a point where The vehicles are being used, using our autonomy software. And it's not just trials, but it starts to get into day-to-day operations of those customers. I think that's like a big milestone for us because that's going to prove a number of things, right? One, it's going to prove and solidify our product market fit. I think it's going to prove our hypothesis that the same software stack can indeed be used in different settings. It's not going to be tens or hundreds of millions of revenues come in, but I think it's going to definitely validate our business model that we are able to generate recurring license fees, maybe from 10 vehicles this year, but it's still going to be the business model that is going to show uh, that we can do. And I think operationally, it's also going to take us to a place where we are operationally scaling up because a lot of our customers, I mean, uh, with the exception of BP, none of our customers are based in the UK. And, I think it's going to be a, quite a bit of a milestone for the company to set up satellite operations, working closely with customers and supporting their deployments. Mm-hmm. Before we started the recording, we were
0: seeing each other and basically I noticed how everyone's also work from home at the moment. And your company is, I think, primarily based in London. So it's also under lockdown, like Germany. How did your sales on the one hand and and also maybe recruiting change? As a result of these lockdown measures and the pandemic, and do, do you foresee any longer-term changes, or do you think that you know we're very fast in immunizations? UK is probably leading the way. They started early in, in Europe, and so we'll just go back to how everything was before.
1: Well, I think it's fair to. Um, I mean, that's actually like that's a great thing, right? I mean, like I. I mean, I've done different types of leadership roles, but I. I mean, none of us, and I've never led a company and a group of individuals in the middle of a pandemic. So from a personal perspective, it was a year with a lot of personal learnings and reflections, trying to balance the work life, which you need to care for everyone else at work, look after their health and safety, not just their health and safety, I mean, their families and their loved ones, because everybody has different backgrounds. I mean, we have people in our company who are, you know, just out of college and living on their own, who... I think you kind of need to worry about them. Okay, do they feel lonely? How how can we keep them engaged? And then you have people who have families and then you have people who are sometimes uh, taking care of some elderly person in the family. So they feel very paranoid about uh, getting in contact with anyone. So it was a very, I mean, and I can only imagine like even in larger companies, how people had to deal with. I, I personally feel we've done a good job in terms of, looking after our team members and people uh, during during the pandemic. We never did anything. I think the underlying principle has been look after them mentally, health and safety, financially. I don't, like we, they were already, like everybody's already under stress. Uh, we didn't want to create an additional level of stress coming from their work life. I hope we did a good job. Of course, they need to be the judges. <laughs> and, in terms of uh, our operations, most of our operations, are uh, offices are in Oxford. We have a small team in Canada, based in Toronto. Uh, our like the development work we do can be done from home, with the exception of, like, it's always awesome to be together and just uh, doing a puzzle or having mm-hmm. lunch together during a lunch break. I mean, you cannot beat that, but I think the work can be done. Then when it comes to the work we do on vehicles, we had to shut those down for a while as well, but now we have reopened them because there's quite a bit of work to do. Um, I mean, it's very limited participation with probably 50% of our capacity. So that does put a little bit of a strain on us because like I said, I mean, if you go back to the previous question, we have a number of things we need to do and a lot of it is going to be around early deployments. So we actually really need to rely on our vehicle engineering and vehicle deployment teams to be working on vehicles. So that definitely is is a challenge that I see we need to deal with in 2021. In terms of um, recruitment, we, I mean, we haven't seen any decline in interest. I think people are, people love what we do. I think people get inspired by the vision. I think we we are a very attractive company for anyone to come and join in the UK and we're definitely hiring right now, of course at the back of our funding round. So if anybody is listening to this podcast and is interested to join us, please <laughs> reach reach out to us. Um, are you also are you also hiring remotely and basically can people yes.
0: continue to work remote or, or or is everybody moving to the to the UK as soon as the lockdowns uh, no,
1: I, th- I think we're i think we realize we we are now in a position to hire remotely as well i mean it of course depends right i mean mm. my 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 point is i think you, you you can do the work but it doesn't it is nice to be coming to the office and meeting others right I, like we hired maybe a number of people in the last six months and although from our perspective, it's been great that they joined us i'm I'm pretty sure for a new joiner to join a company and not necessarily meeting his or her peers is a bit awkward so whatever we do and however well we think we're doing it I'm sure it's not it's just not that good because it's always <coughs> nice you cannot replace the human touch by any means but we are definitely hiring remotely in some locations like there are some Locations that we prioritize, I think definitely, I think we will most probably be hiring in Germany during the later part of 2021. We most probably will be hiring in Canada, continue to hire in Canada, very likely to hire in Australia. And then we also want to grow our presence in the US. So these are some, I guess, top locations that I think we will be hiring in in, in this year. Mm -hmm.
0: When you consider like, hiring more internationally and you have a strong preference for people being able to meet in person. Like I also do, <laughs> we're in the tech industry, but it's definitely easier to build bonds in this way and form like a team spirit. Do you foresee opening offices in these locations, like smaller satellite offices as well? And which city would you pick in Germany to do that?
1: I, I think our what we will see is at the point where we feel we have established a strong enough customer relationship, we will be opening i mean again, opening an office nowadays means different things, right I mean it does you don't yeah. have to physically <laughs> it could be just a office chair or anything like that, but yes, I think what we would love to do, like for example, we have a very small space in Toronto, Canada, mm-hmm. and I think the right thing to do would be at the point where we feel like we're gonna need at least three five, six, or ten people in a location. I would love to be able to have even a small office for people to actually be sitting together. In Germany, it could be a number of different locations, but uh, based on the ongoing engagements with some of our customers there, I think it's likely going to be Southern Germany. And hopefully I'll be able to disclose more about it in coming months.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Great. Awesome. That's super fascinating. It was a super fascinating journey through um, what you are doing at Oxbotica. And, much of it I didn't fully realize. We live I live in, in Hamburg, We uh, we're headquartered there. We have a huge port. I knew already for many years there are these autonomous vehicles driving around like twenty four seven. I did not quite realize how large uh, scale these applications actually are and that you can probably make maybe even faster a viable business out of focusing on on those industries rather than really the on street passenger um, transport or goods transport in Public roads and and to build your technology by doing that in a way that's actually less reliable on external systems, it sounds like it can be a great advantage in the future. It's really fascinating to hear from you. Congratulations again on the on the race and partnerships. Sounds like we'll hear a lot more from the company in the course of the year. What's like an advice that you would give to other founders in mobility that are now? trying to build their business at an early stage? There's a product there already. There's been maybe post-series A, but how to get to the next level in this current environment? Is there anything you can try to give
1: others um, along their journey? Absolutely. So I, I think what we, I mean, again, I think every industry is a little bit different and has peculiarities. What we have seen in our industry is, is can, like, I guess uh, my reflections would be, I think demonstrating the product market fit, basically the startup or the series or series B company being able to articulate, this is our product, this is what we're taking to market, and this is the market we're addressing. And then being able to show, I guess the product market fit is an important thing because that is really like what investors are super interested about. And then the next thing, which is going to be obvious, to be able to show some key customers around customer traction that that really is aligned with the overall strategy because uh, i mean i I think when you are choosing at that stage you cannot work with 10 different customers all at the same time especially if you're Mm -hmm. in the B B software space being able to choose the right go-to-market partner right customer and not the first one and showing Mm -hmm. the discipline to be able to maybe say okay this could be a good customer but it's not a great customer so let's continue our search for what we think is the right partner for us and that right partnership is all around how well anchored in our case the autonomy strategy in the company are they really investing in it as well do they have do they have skin in the game and very importantly i think in in our space is there a good cultural fit because we're working with a lot of like large companies huge enterprises i mean think about like bp or mm. any others is there a right culture fit are they a company that is trusting in a in working with software partners do they have the right cultural elements to actually be working with a partner like us is a very important thing i, th- I think this is actually a, if i can give a little bit of a feedback i think in the automotive industry some of the automotive companies have made this transformation, and when we meet with them, it's amazing. And I think the the DNA—you can see that the DNA is changing. But there's still quite a bit of ways to go with some of the other companies that you you just don't feel like it's going to be a software friendly partnership. And mm-hmm. So finding the right partner with skin in the game, who who you believe is going to be your, I guess, long term partner, I think is key. That's a really
0: interesting and really difficult for any startup team to make or CEO um, to make a decision when any money is important or any revenue is important to also try to focus on who's the right long-term fit and what actually fits into your strategy. It's really, I think, really difficult. Exactly, it is. And I think
1: showing like having the, it's it's a balance, right? Because you're a startup and you're action-oriented and you want to move fast. I guess finding the right balance of trying to move fast at the same time, staying cool, looking for the right partners to pounce, I mm-hmm. guess. <laughs> and once you see the right one, is the art and science, I would say. Mm-hmm. Wow, cool. Thanks a lot. It's cool. It was very nice. Thank you very much it's very enjoyable. Absolutely.